Hear the word of God from 2 Samuel chapter 6. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Baalah in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ohio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ohio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now King David was told, The Lord has blessed the house of, household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. When he saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half-naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michal, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. This is the Lord of the Lord. Good morning, church family. It's good to be in the presence of the Lord together. I know we don't have to be here on Sunday morning to be in the presence of the Lord but there's something so special about the gathered assembly. The corporate worship of the local body praising and worshiping God together. It's so beautiful that the scripture tells us to make sure we do it all the time, that we, we make sure we don't miss out on it. And we make sure we make it a huge priority for us. So it's good to be gathered together with all of you this morning. 
I want to start off today, this time, this message time, with a question. Do any of you have a happy dance? You're like, a, a what? Yeah, okay, all right. This, is really, this will really date me even more so, but when I was growing up, I, my sister and I loved a show called Perfect Strangers. Anybody? Nobody, Perfect Strangers? Thank you, somebody. Balky, come on. That'll really date me, because most of you guys probably weren't even, definitely weren't born when that came out. But that was a wonderful, wonderful show. And in that show, anytime something great happened, anytime there was a celebration, the, the, the two uh, uh, cous- brothers, were they, they were brothers, cousins? Cousins would do a happy dance. So my sister and I, after watching that show, we would, we would have a happy dance. If our parents would let us go rent a movie, we would do a happy dance. Or we'd get the ice cream treat we want, we would do a happy dance. My son, Josiah, has a happy dance. Right? He doesn't call it his happy dance, but he does this little foot shuffle thing when he gets really excited, he does this little number. Right? And, he gets, and you're like, oh, he's really excited. You know, My son, Hudson, does more like a squat kind of, squat a hand move like he's surfing a little bit. That's like his happy dance. You know, um, I, it usually happens when they're like, hey, we're gonna go get ice cream. They're like, yeah, ice cream. Or um, your relatives are coming over, your grandparents are coming over. They start doing this little happy dance and I love watching them do it. I'll be honest with you guys, I have a happy dance. If I get good news, <laughs> I gotta hear that good news. If I, if I get some good news, if I, you know, about to eat a nice ribeye steak or something, or, you know, I, get, like, I just found $20 in my jacket pocket, I'm like, yeah, all right. I have a happy dance. I love happy dances. I don't know about you guys. I think everybody should have a happy dance. I think a new tradition in your house needs to be every time you have good news, you should, guys should break down into happy dances. No? Yeah? Okay. Just throw it out there. Our text today said that David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. He was doing his happy dance. David was dancing. He was happy. And I love how it says with all his might. I love it. I mean, with all, the Bible says with all his might, he was dancing. I want to picture what that looks like. My wife literally just whispered into my ear. She goes, is that breakdancing? Like, what, what is David happy to dance with all his might? What would that look like? And I don't know why. I think it's going to look awkward. I mean, he was a, a warrior. He might have been a good dancer, but I can't imagine him looking smooth doing it. But he was dancing with all his might. Uh, there was a... Um, the uh, last year at a fundraiser for my kid's school, Hudson had a um, booster song da- dance something, whatever, whatever they dance, uh, and they raised money for how long they dance. And he said, Hudson, how long did he dance for last year? I think it was like 24 minutes. 20 minutes. My son danced for 20 minutes straight. I was so impressed. Right? To me, it happy days. I picture it like a Waypoint member's wedding. You guys, some of you guys know what I'm talking about. Some of you guys, Waypoint members, some of your weddings that I've been to. There's some crazy dancing going on at that reception. That's what I'm picturing. I'm picturing just, like, just, just going after, just dancing. I'm, I'm loving this image of David dancing. With, mind you, this is the warrior king David, the one who slew Goliath, the one who had thousands of men following him, the one with the mighty men, these mighty warriors, one guy who could throw a spear through a whole animal, another guy who fought so long against the Philistines by himself in this kind of gap area that his sword was like, like glued to his hand. The guy who led these guys, the guy who led battle after battle, who they sing songs of Saul slew his thousands, David his tens of thousands. That guy is just dancing, just dancing before the Lord. He was expressing his joy, his delight, his happiness. He couldn't just feel it, he had to express it physically. So the question I have to ask, why was David so happy? 
right? Is that the question you have to ask? Is what would make this guy dance with all his might? What made him so happy that he had to dance? Verse 1, it says, David got 30,000 men together to go down to bring up the ark of God. Now, 30,000 men, was he expecting to be attacked? Was, was it warriors to be like, whoa, in case somebody tries to get us? No. He was doing a, a ceremonial procession. He was, he was doing the Macy's Day Parade on steroids. He was, it was an incredible celebration of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, quickly, what's the Ark? Quick question to you guys, okay? Ark of the Covenant. What was in the Ark of the Covenant? Trivia question, go. Say that again? Ta- okay, so the Ten Commandments. Staff. Manna. Good job, you guys. I'm impressed. I bet you there's a lot of places I could ask that question. People would be like, uh, radioactive power? <laughs> but in all seriousness, there are three things that were inside the staff, or inside the ark. But what was most important? Was it what was inside or what else? It was his presence that was on top. See, a little bit of background. The ark was a large wooden box overlaid with gold inside and out. And on the top were two golden cherubim facing each other. And Moses made the ark because of the express commands of God. They housed the ark in a tabernacle, in other words, a a tent temple. And this tent temple was at the center of the Israelite wandering in the wilderness. This was at the center of how they were organized as armies and as people. And they're wandering, everything focused and centered around the tabernacle. And in this tent temple, there was one and only one piece of furniture in the most sacred holy spot. It was in the back room of the tabernacle in a place called the Holy of Holies. And in that holy of holies, in the place where God's royal, holy, majestic presence dwelt, where the place where no one could go, except the high priest, and even him only once a year, there was nothing there but the ark. The ark would therefore signify the presence of a holy, transcendent God with his people. The ark represented the fact that this holy presence of God would dwell with his people. So when the children of Israel went into Canaan, God told them to carry the ark into the Jordan. And what happened to the Jordan? The water stopped so they could go across on dry land. And when they went to conquer Jericho, God told them to carry the ark around Jericho, right? Isn't that what happened? They were blowing trumpets and carrying the ark around, and the walls came tumbling down. The ark symbolized that God was with his people, and he was their people's God. But then during the time of Eli, who was one of the leaders of Israel, the sons of Eli decided to take the ark into a battle against the Philistines. But instead of winning, which is what they were accustomed to, they said, if I have the lucky charm, if I have the ark, we would win. But instead of winning, they lost. And the sons of Eli were killed, and the ark was captured. The news of the ark's capture killed Eli. The Philistines took the ark. They took it into the land as a kind of trophy. Now, the ark in the nation of the Philistines brought incredible havoc, mayhem, and finally the Philistines in territory said, I don't want this thing, take it back. So they sent the ark out of their territory, just to the border of Israel, and then for years the ark stayed at a little place called Kiriath-Jerim. It's the border of Israel, and it really just stayed in the kind of the periphery of Israel for a little while. And what's very interesting to note is that all during the reign of King Saul, he never once thought about the ark. He didn't. Maybe that kind of tells you the ambivalent relationship King Saul actually had with God. But when David became king, David says, we need to have the ark back. We need the ark, not just back, but we need it in Jerusalem. We need to have the ark in the capital. We have to build a temple there. We have to have the ark in the capital. But why? 
Now, if you study this text some further with other chapters and you look at the parallel account of 1 Chronicles 13 and 15, David has at least two motives. And they're both very worthy and very wise motives of why he wants to arc back. Number one, David wanted to show Israel who the real king was. So his first motive of bringing the ark back into the capital, bringing it back to Jerusalem, is he wanted everybody to know who the real king of Israel was. David has become king with God's help, with God's help only. David says, how in the world can I show the people of Israel that not David, but God is the true king? How can I show my people that it's not trust in military might, not trust in political power, but it's relationship with God, which is real safety? The answer is, I'll bring God's house of worship and make it paramount. I'll make it the center of the city. Unless I bring God's house to the capital, people will forget. They'll think it's might. They'll think it's arms. They'll think it's the palace. They'll think it's the king. No. But if it's the temple is built it up, if the temple is the center, then they'll know that God is the center of the nation. You'll see this discussed in 2 Samuel 7 and so forth in the next chapter. You see, David wanted them to show who the real king is. You see this motivation in the song David sings in 1 Chronicles 16, as well as the psalms that he wrote. You never see the ark was the throne of God in the throne room of God in the capital city of his people. And David says, I got to bring the house of God to the capital so that people will see that God is the real king. And that fellowship with him and nearness to him is their only security. But I also love that David had a personal reason as well. Number two, his second reason, David longed for the presence of God. David longed for the presence of God. You can see that if you go to First Chronicles, you see that David, um, in, Chronicles, in Chronicles tells us what songs were, the, were, were that David song, they, they, they sang these songs on the way. And David said in the songs, he says that he was, strength and joy is in thy dwelling place. That's a quote from one of the songs that David wrote to his people. Strength and joy is in thy dwelling place. So David being a leader, had come to see what, how hard it is, the burdens a leader had to be, carry how hard it is to be a leader. He knew that his only hope of being a leader was fellowship with God, access to God, presence of God. And the ark was a significant symbol of the fact that the transcendent and holy God could dwell with his people. That he had connection to God. He wanted to be near God. I reminded of that song, Be Near, Oh God. Shane Shane song. You guys know that one? Be Near. I don't know. There's that song for me that every time that I wonder, I feel this need of something. My, my prayer often isn't, God, fix this thing. For me, I just, I just sing that prayer saying, God, will you be near? Not that he's far away, but will you let my heart know that you're near? And there's this song that Shane and Shane sings called, Be near, oh God, be near. Your nearness is to us our good. I'm a bad singer, so I would have sang the whole song. But if I had like, good singer voices, I would have sang the whole thing for you, but that's all you get. I'm struck with it when I'm struggling. Oftentimes I'll, I'll pray a, a prayer that says something like, God, will you fix this? Will you answer this? But then I'm struck with more, well, I don't know if I'll answer all the problems I have. So that's my prayer often when I'm struggling is I pray this prayer that says, God, will you be near? Because all my struggles as a leader, as a pastor, as a husband, as a, as a friend, as a brother, as a person, there's a lot of struggles. And there's just one thing that'll fix all those struggles. So I'm left with nothing but to say, God, will you be near? Because your nearness is my good. 
And so this is the prayer of David. He's king and he's stressed and all this is happening and he realizes something. He said he realizes that I just need the nearness of God. I need the presence of God in my life. So he wanted to bring the, the ark. He wanted it to be right next door to him. He wanted it to be in the capital city where he exists. He needed the presence of God. That's why he was bringing it up. That's why this big procession was partly a huge prayer of the people toward God to seek and come live in Jerusalem. This procession, this prayer was, God, come and dwell amongst your people. It was a way of showing to people the importance of fellowship with God. And it's David's way of saying that I want you to know this, my people. There's a need for the ark. You need the ark. We need the ark. We need the presence of God. Now, here's where you may stop and think, wait a minute, Lawrence. In this text that we read today, Someone died for touching the ark. I'm not quite sure I want the ark. I'm just going to be honest with you. Right? It seemed like he was doing a good thing. He tried to, the ark was stumbling. He died, he died for it. So watch, you, you can just have the ark. It seems a little dangerous. It seems a little, ooh, right? I'll be remiss if we didn't mention this. I want to talk about this. I actually get a lot of this next quick little section from a, a sermon by Tim Keller. And he called it the problem of the ark. And so here it is. It says, you have the problem of the ark. And as they reached out to the ark of God, this, this man struck, was struck down by the Lord. It's this chilling idea that his man reached out, touched the ark, and he was just struck down dead. There's these guys, Uzzah and Ohio, they were the sons of Binadab, and they were in charge of the ox cart, and they, they put the ark on an ox cart, and you don't ride an ox cart, you, you, kinda, you don't like sit back on it with like a reins and stuff like that. And as an ox cart, you just kind of stand by it and you, as you, it's kind of wobbly as you kind of direct it as you go along. And as they were doing so, the ox stumbled and it was a very understandable. He put his hand up when he saw the ark of God. It looks like it was about to maybe fall to the ground and he stops it. And then God strikes him down. God strikes him down. And you're struck by that, right? When you read this, you can't help but be like, whoa. There's a couple of things you might be missing though. You guys ready for it? Number one, when first, Chronicle, when first was given account of the ark, God gave Moses directions for how the ark should be made, but also how the ark should be moved. When he made the ark, Moses was told by God to put four golden rings at the corner of the ark, and he put two poles through those rings, and they're wooden poles overlaid with gold, and those poles were never to be taken out, and whenever the ark was moved, it was never to be put on a cart, and it was only ever to be moved by the Levites, in particular, the Levites who were descended from Moses. And they had to lift it with these poles, put them on their shoulders, and not let any human being touch the ark. Or should the ark be set down on any kind of cart? You with me so far? You see the problem, right? They broke all the rules. Uzzah, they, didn't, they put it on the cart. They didn't use the golden poles. They weren't Levites. They broke all the rules. Imagine this scene. David and the whole house of Israel celebrating with all their might. There was joy, there was singing, there was dancing. And all of a sudden this guy reached out, he struck dead. And then there was silence. Maybe weeping. Maybe people getting hysterical. And all of a sudden all those 30,000 people were like, oh, no, peace out, we're out of here. And can you be honest with you guys, this is kind of what people hate sometimes about the Bible. Am I right? People don't like reading about somebody being struck down by touching something holy. People don't like reading about that. People don't like hearing about that. It's tough. A lot of Christians want to sweep this story under the rug and be like, oh, but God is a God of love now. 
right? That's our typical nature. When we read something like this, we're struck with how hard this is. We're like, why did he get struck dead? That seems so harsh. That's so messed up. Let's sweep this under the rug and say only God's a God of love and forget about that part. Am I right? I have a tendency to want to do that. I think it's human of us in this day and age. Clearly, he broke the rules. Yes, there are rules. But some people will say, but, but look at his heart. Doesn't God look at his heart? Isn't God, God a, a God who looks at the internal, not the external? Wasn't he just trying to catch the ark? Who cares that he broke some rules? What kind of God is that? I don't want a God like that. And I get that emotion. There are some of us who don't care about rules that much. I might be one of those guys. It's not about the petty little rules. It's about the heart of the matter. As long as I intended good, who cares about the rules, right? Can I tell you something? The rules matter. Here's why. God had plenty of reasons for all his little rules, but we often miss the real reason when we focus on just one of them and not the whole picture. You got to look at the forest through the trees. The rules of the tabernacle, which at first seemed very weird, all these clean and unclean laws, eat this, don't eat that, wash this, wear this, only do this, you can't go in when all this stuff is happening, and don't touch it, don't put it on a cart, only certain people can move it. When you look at all these rules and you think, what's up with all these rules, who cares? But if you look back and see the force, I want you to get this message. Tim Keller says the following, God has one very important message that he's trying to get through to people's head. It was fundamental, it is crucial, and sometimes we hate it, we're insulted by it. We don't want to hear it. But God has to, in the Bible, in hundreds of ways, try to beat it into our heads. And in the most important way, he did it in the Old Testament through visual aids. A great way to deal with slow learners. Let me show you, it's like this. What God is trying to say is this. This is the message of the ark, it was all about rules. Here's the message. Your sin is serious. Your sins separate you from a holy God. That's in paraphrase, paraphrase what God is saying all through these rules in Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Exodus, all through the Old Testament. There's a fundamental message that he's trying to get across. is that your sin separates you from God. God is holy. He is righteous. He is good. He is just. And sin, just is like water and fire, they can't coexist. They're not together. One consumes the other, so your sin and holiness cannot dwell together. My friends, says God, your sins do not defile you just a little bit. There is not a sin that just kind of messes you up just a touch. It completely changes you. Your sin completely corrupts you and completely separates you from a holy, righteous God. It fundamentally changes your whole element, your, your whole everything about you. And he's saying that I can't just, as a holy, righteous God, can't just say, oh, well, at least you tried kind of hard. Because it diminishes righteousness and justice. And if he's the definition, if we know what righteousness and justice and holiness is by the way of the nature of God, that he cannot diminish those things. He can't say, oh, well, you sinned a little. Oh, well, you don't follow the rules, but you kind of have a good heart about you. Oh, well, you took the easy way, but that's okay. He can't do that. That wouldn't be him, and that wouldn't be right to us. That wouldn't show justice and righteousness to us. He's a holy God. He's also a redeeming God. God's saying all throughout the Bible that you can't be saved through your works because your sin is too serious. You can't even come in contact with me. 
Something has to happen to deal with your sin. There's an issue. There's an issue of sin. And something needs to happen. You can't even touch me. You can't even be in my presence. There's a separation. And something needs to happen. A lot of people, something does happen. Many years later, the book of John says in verse, chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That phrase, made his dwelling among us, can be translated tabernacled amongst us. In other words, the presence of God that was reserved for the ark has chosen to live amongst his people. Have you guys ever wondered what happened to the ark, by the way? Anybody ever wondered? I wish I had Indiana Jones music right now for you. Dun, 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 dun. Nobody? Yeah? Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> After Solomon built the temple and dedicated the people, the ark sort of disappears from our text. Right? Not much is really made of it. Not much is really talked about. But doesn't that match up with what happens? It matches up because the good kings of Israel pretty much disappear as well. They don't care about the presence of God. They don't know and profess God as the king of Israel. So the ark isn't mentioned much of, of all at all. As a matter of fact, the temple eventually is destroyed. Right? It's looted. It's plundered. Guys, the people turned so far away from God that even the very place that the holiest of holies of presence was invaded, plundered, gold stripped away, the temple ransacked. They rebuilt the ark multiple times. Zerubbabel built, rebuilt it, but then even Herod rebuilt it after the Maccabee Revolution. And King Herod rebuilds the ark, or rebuilds the temple. But we really don't know whatever happened to the actual ark. More than likely, I'm going to say, more than likely it was stripped of its gold and plundered and sent away. Or we can all go on a journey together. I'm okay with this. We all want to go. We can go looking for it. Okay? There are Nazis after it right now but we can get there first, okay? I truly believe that. I would be up for this journey. The ark isn't mentioned much of it all, but then John uses this term to talk about Jesus, the presence of God's dwelling. Earlier, we were left needing a way, a different way, a new way to handle our sin and our separation from the presence of God. We didn't want to be like Uzzah and not be able to touch the presence. We needed a new way for us to be in the presence of God because we know we needed it, but we know our sin separates us. So in the fullness of time, Jesus came and made a way for the very holy presence of God to dwell with us forever. He handles the problem of sin and a righteous God. He is the high priest that allows us access to the Holy of Holies. He's furthermore the sacrifice that atones for us. The whole book of Hebrews fleshes it out like this. Listen to this from Hebrews chapter 10. First he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them. Though they were offered in accordance with the law, then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. And again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies 
to us about this. First he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I'll put my laws in their hearts and I'll write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great, high, a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward good love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Do you see it? That we be given access to the presence of God. That is a promise given. Guys, I want you to understand this. When a, when a covenant was made with Abraham, when God said to Abraham, I will be your God, you will be my people, literally the promise was that you will have me, you will have my presence. The reward for Abraham was not a ton of children. The reward for Abraham wasn't uh, wealth and for, uh, life eternal. The reward for Abraham was God himself. And you see that promise all throughout Scripture. You see it in the ark, but ultimately you see it in Jesus, my people to you. Can you hear me very well? This is the promise of God to you. It's not that your life will be clean and perfect and happy and go lucky all the time. It's not that you'll have nothing but joy and celebration. It's not that you'll only be happy dances forever. The promise is that you'll get the great reward, and that reward is God himself. And that when no matter what happens, be it bad, be it good, be it sorrow that wrecks your heart or be it joys that makes you sing. Ultimately, that nothing else matters compared to the joy of having God in your life by being in the presence of him. The psalmist said, one day, one day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. One day. My people... My people, the presence of God is our promise and our great reward. He is our great reward. My friends, we can celebrate the way David did because through the work of Jesus, we now can dwell and be and have the presence of God in our lives. He is our great reward. We are known, we are loved, we are called to purpose. We know that we are adopted children forever. The promise of his presence is that he is with us forever. He now tabernacles amongst us. There is no new temple. There is no ark that is worth anything. I take back going on the journey to find the ark. I don't want it now. I don't want that ark anymore because it's not worth it. Because we are the dwelling place of the most high God. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, God. Oh, for your holiness and your goodness. God, I, that in your holiness and your goodness, that you, your grace, God, your love. God, that you are a God that desires to make his presence known and intimacy felt between you and your people. 
And thank you that you made a way for that to happen through the work of Jesus Christ. And we now can stand in confidence because of our great high priest and the sacrifice given. How we thank you. God, your nearness is to us our good. You are a great reward. We praise you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Man, those words are striking. Your sins separate you from God. That just struck me afresh this morning. Thank you, Pastor Lawrence, for this word. And um, this morning, as, as we come, we come to the Lord's table. We come to, to remember and to celebrate that the new life that we, we have in Jesus, that, that God has given us through the resurrection, through his death and resurrection. You know, in the ancient world, a, a meal invitation to an estranged person opened up the way for reconciliation. Well, in Jesus, we are no longer estranged, but we are welcomed. We have become family of God. And Jesus has offered you, he's offered you a seat at his banquet table. What's the occasion? What are we celebrating? We come to remember how we are brought into his presence. This is how God has done it. In 1 Corinthians 11, the apostle Paul says, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread and he had given thanks. He, he broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so this time I'm going to invite our service to come forward to be able to serve the, the elements. And for those of you who are new to, to Waypoint, uh, we, we practice communion by calling people to come forward to receive the elements. We participate by receiving what God has done for us. He's done this for you, and so we come to receive it. Now, for health reasons or any other, you're unable to come forward. Uh, we also have stations set up around the room, as well as designated gluten-free options in the back, as well as up front here, as we'll be serving to you. Uh, our, our servers will be standing in the front with, with two servers designated for, for each section. Each, uh, each section of chairs will have two servers standing in front that we invite you to, to come forward to. Now, we believe this meal is reserved for those who have repented of their sins and trusted in Christ alone as their Savior. This is what we're doing together. We do this as a family to celebrate what Christ has done. Our participation is an act of worship as we remember and confess Christ crucified and Christ risen, he has done it. And so church, at this time, we invite you to come forward. Come forward and receive this meal. The table is open to you.
Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your presence. God, we thank you that you are a God who cares about dwelling with your people. Because God, we know that we couldn't get to you on our own merits, by our own efforts. It's only through what you have done that you come low to us, that you draw near to us. And God, you come, you come honestly. You give us a fair assessment about ourselves. But God, you come with also with solutions on what to do about it. God, that we are sinful in need. That's, that's our condition. That's how you find us. But God, you don't leave us there. But you make a way for healing, for restoration, for renewal. God, you reconcile. You reconcile us to yourselves through your son, Jesus. And so for that, we praise you. God, we give you all the glory, all the thanks, because you, you are deserving of praise, God. And so we pray that we would lift your name up in this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.